Welcome to the Wiggly Podcast. This week is a real special. Natural England looks after Mockers Deer Park and Mockers Deer Park is a mystery to everyone who lives around and about. We know there's a special beetle that no one else has on the planet. We know there's some of the oldest oaks in the world, I think. That's what legend says. But none of us are allowed to go to Mockers Deer Park. As we drive by, we see all the deer when they come down to the gate for a bit of a feed and we look at them and we watch the stags fighting and we wonder what's going on up the wood. But basically, despite living three miles away, I've only ever been in Mocker's Deer Park three times. The first was one of my first rides on Billy's Bulldozer as he cleared the woods and took me right up high into the trees and I can remember being absolutely terrified because it seemed like we were going to topple backwards. The second was where I went behind the tree to kiss one of the local boys at the dance at the barbecue where we had the disco in Rockers Deer Park and you could kind of go behind the trees and kiss the boys. Moving on. And the third was when Monty was a small boy and we were invited to Mockers Deer Park for a Natural England Get to Know Your Local Environment Day and we seriously did end up hugging trees tree hugging. Bit odd that. But today Rachel gets an expert guide to take her round Mockers Deer Park. We all wanted to go from Wiggly Wigglers but they couldn't do a Saturday. So we've sent Rachel off with the microphone to share with you an exclusive listening. Never been heard on the radio before, never had this much access, a special little wiggly treat for you. Let's find out all about it. Now, don't worry about the sound effects, they're the wind. And we've now applied a a nice helmet to the wiggly morants so that next time we go, there's less wind noise. But any (laughs) is not Rachel going... It's the wind. The danger is that your sheep or your cow wakes up in the middle of the night for a pee and then decides its belly isn't full and it's hungry and starts eating your beans or your triticale wheat or whatever Mm -hmm. it is you're growing. So that's one of the jobs of a shepherd. So they have to stay up and watch their flocks so that anyone that starts scoffing the beans... They run out, grab it, bring it back here and put it in this little enclosure next mm-hmm. to their heart, the pinfold. Mm-hmm. The other reason they have to watch them is because a flock of sheep fast asleep down there is easy prey for wolves and you've got wolves up here. So the Assyrians came down like wolves on the fold. Now you understand where that comes from. Mm-hmm. So that's why I love this place because you've got you know, a Repton carriage drive, capability brown trees, a Norman park pile, a pre-Norman hut platform and pre-Norman medieval arable cultivation all in front of you within a space of 15 metres. 
it's just an extraordinarily wonderful mm. place once you start to understand it and interpret the humps and bumps on the ground. You have a cross-section of how many years, I suppose? Well, you know, from Neolithic times, yeah. so thousands of years. And we've got near prehistoric field systems further up the park and, as I say, Iron Age barrows and loads and loads of um, evidence of uh, woodland management here with saw pits and charcoal platforms and layers and layers and layers of it. So how large is the park? Well, that's a good question. Originally, at its biggest extent, um, during the Norman period... Ooh, what was that? It was a mushroom, was it? Yeah, well, this is one of the... There's a larger one here. These are really nice, and these... Wow, colour of them. Yeah. Fantastic these are, these red. Are, these are called wax cap uh-huh. mushrooms. And they come out at this time of year, and there's lots of different sorts of them. Yep. But many of them are brightly coloured reds, purples... Uh, greens, uh, yellows, and they're really good indicators of ancient grassland that hasn't been agriculturally intensified. So you can actually you can get a handle on how intensive the management of grasslands has been by um, counting the number of different species mm. of these wax cap mushrooms that you find. I don't know what this one is without pulling it up, and I don't want to pull it up because it's nice. <laughs> I think this is the one that's actually called Parrot Cap. It's the most oh. fabulous red, isn't Beautiful. it? Beautiful. Mm. So sort of red Are these edible? They're, they're edible, but they don't taste very nice. Ah. So they won't kill you, but I wouldn't recommend well, eating them. So we were talking about the size of the park. Oh, yeah, OK. So uh, at the sort of height of the Norman era, era um, it was very big. It stretched from where we are now, almost on the road, right up to the top of the ridge and down the other side of the ridge into the Golden Valley. So it was thousands of acres at that point and when it contracted and contracted. The size of the present National Nature Reserve is about 400 acres. Sorry, <laughs> I still work in acres. I can't do hectares. That's um, fine. <laughs> <laughs> but, excitingly, in, in, we can't see it from here, but in the 1950s, the family had to sell off part of the park to pay death duties. And that was sold on and all the trees were chopped down and it was replanted with um, alien conifers. Mm-hmm. But very excitingly, three years ago, the Woodland Trust managed to buy that 100 acres that, that had been sliced off the park in the 1950s. And they've now leased that to Natural England, so we're now starting to manage that. Mm-hmm. And we'll be restoring it. We'll be t- taking the conifers out um, and replanting with oaks and other things and restoring it eventually in 300 years time to something that looks like this and that bit on the top will be open to the public so people will be able to uh, wander up there and you get the most jaw-dropping achingly beautiful views from the top because you can look out into England across Mm -hmm. the Wye Valley down to Hay Bluff across the Morgan Hills you can see them all and looking west you look across the Golden Valley and you can see the Black Mountains and the Brecon it's absolutely stunning stunning views from there, which is one of the reasons why it's, it's part of the park, because certainly one of Capability Brown's big tricks was to design fantastic views mm-hmm. for you and surprise views, and so that's why that was in the, in the landscape park originally, so that Capability Brown could play about and mm-hmm. produce so, wonderful views for you. So where we parked on the other side of the road, yeah. that looked like Parkland as well. Yes, it and is. So Marcus court is on the yeah. other side so okay you have to understand how an 18th century country estate was classically laid out so you had your house Mockers court beautiful beautiful georgian house typical mm-hmm. red brick square georgian mansion 
on the banks of the Wye. Immediately around your house, you would have what we call the pleasure grounds, mm -hmm. which were very highly landscaped, highly managed. Then coming away from the pleasure grounds, you would then go into the, the park, the home park, which is where we parked our cars, mm -hmm. which uh, was parkland, but it would have been intensively fairly intensively managed to produce an income. And then the next step away is your deer park. So that's the house, mm -hmm. pleasure grounds, home park, deer park. And the deer park is wilder still. So you're, you're going from a very deliberately moving through from a very highly manicured, well-presented mm -hmm. pleasure grounds progressively into wilder and wilder landscapes until you get into the deer park. We still haven't seen any deer yet. They're very shy. <laughs> so what we're going to do is just wander across and look at the oldest tree in the park. Oh goody. Is it this one here? No. No, no that's only about 600 years old. <laughs> oh, <really? laughs> oh, wow. So what sort of trees have we got here? OK, well, that's quite an interesting question. It's overwhelmingly oak, mm -hmm. um, partly because that's the native sort of standard tree around here anyway, uh, partly because lots and lots of oaks were planted. And it's quite complicated, and you have to go back to the politics and the culture of the time when John Evelyn uh, was writing Silver, which was on the face of it, a great treatise on forestry but was actually a political tract with the oak being the sort of iconic symbol of Englishness and, and the oak was so important because it was so bound up with making ships which is what made Britain great so that, at that time the oak was a really iconic tree because it stood for power and character mm -hmm. um, of well England effectively rather than Britain and so a lot of trees, a lot of oaks were planted at that time. But also here, um, there are a lot of horse chestnuts and a lot of sweet chestnuts, none of, neither of which are native to, um, to Britain. They're the main tree species here. The sweet chestnuts and horse chestnuts are sort of dual-purpose trees because they make very nice landscape trees. Mm -hmm. I can't actually see a big one, but there's a 50-year-old sweet chestnut mm -hmm. here, and they make superb, stunning feature trees. But they have lots and lots of sweet chestnuts and conkers uh, which fall to the ground, uh, as do the acorns from the oak trees, and that's what feed, helps to feed the deer herd through the winter. So um, they are a dual-purpose tree, and then their importance for keeping the deer alive mm -hmm. uh, or getting them in good condition in the autumn so they go into the winter in good condition uh, shouldn't be underestimated. So, no, this is the oldest tree in the park. Goodness. And I have to... To go and stroke her. It's the most amazing shape, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's the shape that they go when they get really, really, really old. Sort of bulbous. Yeah, vase shape. Vase shape, like ah, a, like yeah. Big vase, yeah. Yeah. Hello, girl. You, ha you have to say hello to Hello. Wow. So, how old is this tree, uh, Tim? Well, that's what everyone wants to know, isn't it? No. no cutting it down to count no, the rings. Obsessive. Well, you wouldn't be able to because it's completely hollow in the middle. And oh. so you wouldn't be able to do that anyway. It's a bit of, a, bit of an arcane science, uh, ageing trees. It's somewhere probably between 900 and 1100 years oh. old. You can call it a thousand years old if it makes you happy. 
where it's growing tends to support that age because what we're actually standing on is the boundary between two areas of medieval ridge and furrow, one out in front of us here mm-hmm. and one just behind us on the top of that plateau just mm-hmm. up there. This was the boundary between two pre-Norman arable fields. So we know this boundary is pre-Norman and there would probably have been a dead hedge mm-hmm. along this boundary. And you can speculate that what happened was that a, a, an acorn fell into the dead hedge or a jay flying over dropped an acorn into the dead hedge. That was protected from grazing because it fell inside a dead hedge. And uh, it germinated um, sometime when this was an active boundary, so sometime pre-Norman this thing germinated. So saying it's a thousand years old is probably not uh, mm. far wide of the mark at all, given that it's growing on a boundary that's mm-hmm. a thousand years old or older. I mean, what you say that the, it's hollow inside, mm. but it's still quite leafy, yep. but it, it all seems to be kind of around the edge. How does a tree of this age grow and sustain <laughs> itself? Right. Mm, that's quite complicated. Um, <laughs> 50 words or less. <laughs> no, can't do, it, can't do it in 50 words or less. The trees, trees do two things in order to um, get old. Mm-hmm. One is to lower their canopy and get smaller, mm-hmm. um, and the other is to hollow themselves. So let's think about those in turn. If you're a tree, you can't keep growing up. There's a natural limit to the height of a tree okay, because it physically can't pump the nutrients from its roots up mm-hmm. above a certain height yep. easily. So there's, there's just a physical, physico-chemical limit to how yep. high a tree can get. It's also really stupid to keep growing high because the higher you get, the higher your centre of gravity gets at the same time. So the more likely you are in a storm to blow over, the more mm-hmm. inherently unstable you are, the higher you are. Um, so that's why you don't get 18-foot tall people because um, if they hadn't had a heart attack trying to pump their blood to their brains, they would have tripped over and fractured their skulls. So oak trees grow to sort of oak tree height. You can see that you know they're growing mm-hmm. to sort of oak tree height. These They can't get any bigger than that. It's mm-hmm. stupid to get bigger than that. But you've got to keep growing. If you stop growing, you die. So these trees are putting on girth mm-hmm. all the time. And they're slowing down as well because they're getting old. So they're not as vigorous. So what they do is they kill their upper canopies. You can see that tree over there mm-hmm. uh, with the dead branches in it. There's nothing wrong with that tree. People see oak trees, stag-headed oaks, and they think, oh, it's ill, it's dying. What does stag-headed oak mean? Well, you get the Is dead, that a dead stage? branches. Yes, yeah. you can see the dead branches sticking out of the top of that one. Yeah, and this, I mean, this one and this here? one, yeah. And people think, oh, there's something ah, wrong with that okay. tree. Well, there might be something wrong with it, but the chances are there's absolutely nothing wrong with it at all. What the tree is doing is killing its upper canopy mm-hmm. and bringing its canopy down because it's less vigorous. And at the same time as it does that, it lowers its centre of gravity. So it makes it less prone to fall over as it gets older. Mm-hmm. Second thing you do is hollow yourselves because the amount of living tissue in a tree is very small. Okay, It's just the bark and a little bit of live wood, sapwood behind it. The bulk of a tree is dead. Mm-hmm. Okay, So the bulk of a really small tree like this one, what's that, 20 years old? Mm-hmm. The bulk of that tree is dead already. It's only the few outer rings that are alive. Everything inside is dead. 
what the trees do is they hollow themselves by allowing fungi that are living under your feet in the grass Mm -hmm. into the tree to rot the dead wood inside to turn the tree from a rod into a cylinder Mm -hmm. Um, and by becoming a cylinder in most circumstances that makes the tree stronger it's able to withstand torsional stresses through gales and things much better than if it was a rod where it might just snap mm-hmm. um, so hollowing in trees is a natural phenomenon the tree is in control of and does itself but the key to the hollowing are these fungi that live in the ground and unless you get the grassland management around the trees right then the fungi will die the one thing they really hate is agricultural fertilisers. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you fertilise the grassland to increase the grass growth, um, that almost certainly will kill off the fungi under the soil. Mycorrhizal. The mycorrhizal. It'll yeah. kill off the mycorrhizal fungi, um, which then can't get into the tree to hollow it, so the tree can't hollow But if everything's hunky-dory, then mm. all the tree does is it slowly lowers itself. So, you know, most of this canopy is nowhere near as old as the tree is. Yep. You can see all the, all this new vigorous growth coming out here, mm-hmm. which is, you know, all, in terms of the tree, extraordinarily young. Um, but it can keep doing that. Um, this tree's, you know, it's old and it's battered and it's falling to pieces and eventually it will just fall completely to pieces. And can you tell whether or not it's been struck by lightning at any point? I don't think this one has, no. I don't think so. And this is the famous tree that the Moccas beetle was first found in. And for many, many years, the Moccas beetle was, in, was only known in the UK from this tree. So it wasn't just restricted to Moccas Park, it was restricted wow. to this tree for years and years and years. And um, subsequently, in the last few years, it's been found in a handful of other trees. Yeah. But the Moccas beetle is only known still from about six trees in the UK, and they're all in Moccas Park. <laughs> and the larvae live inside the tree eating the dead wood that yeah. the fungi have rotted. And so are, what sort of oak trees are they? Ah, OK, well, that's an, an interesting question. <laughs> Full wish, of interesting I, questions, I wish you me. Asked me that. <laughs> most of them appear to be hybrids between peduncular oak and sessile oak. Probably natural hybrids. Geographically, we're, we're on the sort of zone where sessile oak and peduncular oak come together, so that's, that probably explains it. So you can see how hollow this tree yeah. is inside. Yeah. This has lost this huge, huge limb. The tree, I mean, trees can heal small wounds when mm-hmm. they lose limbs, but, I mean, you can see that the size of this... That uh, gaping hole. This hole where the limb two, came three off. three metres wide, isn't it? It's, it's huge, yeah. So it's over a metre wide by... And is the mark around it... Well, scar. Yeah, what I was going to say was that if it had been a smaller hole, what the tree tries to do is to close that hole up. Mm-hmm. And that's what these big rolls of bark, this bark growing to try and close this up. Okay. It never will because the hole is just too big. Mm-hmm. But if it was a smaller hole, then it would successfully close it off. Because it's all right being a cylinder, but a cylinder with a hole in is not very good news, really. But again, you can see huge numbers of little holes of different sizes where all these beetles have uh, emerged from this fallen limb and this is one of the the fungi that does the rotting so Mm -hmm. this is the sort of wow that's fabulous isn't it 
So this is the stage of the fungi that actually produces the spores. So these fungi will be the main mycelium of yep. the fungus, the main body of it is inside the yep. spawn and limb. And every now and again, not necessarily every year by any means, it shoves out these bracket bits on the outside, mm-hmm. which is what everyone sees because you mm-hmm. can see inside it. And these are what produce the spores. This They're is one of the polypores. Aren't big they? Polypore fungus, yeah, bigger than a dinner, much bigger than a dinner plate. And there's a really beautiful yellowy, creamy colour. Yeah, and um, red underneath. Oh. And they go hard. We have some. They do go hard. They yeah. go these, hard. these are quite young. They've, they've, mm. they've, they've only grown. They've only been growing a couple of weeks. But mm-hmm. yeah, so they'll, they'll keep growing for another few weeks, and then they'll produce spores, and then they'll go really hard and like wood. Yeah. Their job's done. They're dead. Then they'll stay on the tree until mm-hmm. they drop off. But at this stage, these fungi are quite important for lots of other creepy crawlies that will live inside the fungi, mm-hmm. and the larvae will eat the fungi. That's great, aren't they? So you mentioned before that there would have been wild boar and wolves here as well. Yeah, there would. What sort of creatures do we have here now? Well, we've got polecats, uh-huh. which are now quite common all, all around. Herefordshire. see them dead on the road outside Wiggly Wigglers fairly regularly, hmm. unfortunately. I think I've yeah. seen one by the side of the road, yeah. actually, sitting up near the Lug Meadows. Mm-hmm. Oops, squirrel. Yeah, plenty of them. Hmm. We'll see what all these birds are. That's a nuthatch calling. Okay, we're in the middle of a little mixed flock of tits and nuthatches and tree troopers at the moment. There's all three of our woodpeckers here. Great spotted, lesser spotted, and green woodpecker. One always associates trees with holes in with, with owls. Mm-hmm. Well, there's little owls here and there's tawny owls here. Yeah, lots of red starts, pied flycatchers. So yeah, I just brought you here to show you some nice trees. This is a, It's not particularly tall, but it's a field maple, and it's extraordinarily tall for a field maple. It's massive. I mean, field maples very, very rarely get that size. And it has a vanishingly rare creepy crawly that lives in it as well. The leaves are just starting to turn, aren't they? Oh, yeah, yeah. This is a lime. Wow, that is enormous. enormous lime, yes, it's why I brought you to see it. (laughs) It's not the biggest lime in the park, actually. The the biggest limes in the park are absolutely humongous things. Gosh. And if you go and stand underneath it, it's even better because you can look right through it. It's just incredible how wide and flat the canopy is there, or the bottom of the canopy. Well, that's because the deer have grazed off all the branches. Ah. This is what's called the browse line. Okay, so the deer can, you can see how high the deer can reach. The deer can reach to here. Okay. And no higher, so they browse off all the the canopy. Four foot off the ground, almost. (laughs) Not much less than me. It makes it easy to walk underneath. Yeah, nice. Isn't that a, a really beautiful trunk? Yeah, it's all with legs. These fluted mm. columns coming out of it. Trees have different ways of giving themselves stability, but this mm-hmm. is typically what limes will do. They produce these big, splayed, fluted columns coming sweeping down, which which are very strong, mm-hmm. um, like ribs almost, mm-hmm. holding the tree up from the bottom. But again, you can see how vigorous this is. This is new young growth coming out here. See this sort of shape here, this burr. Yeah. Big birds here, these sort of excrescences and yeah. carbuncles or what you will. This is really crucial to the tree being able to lower its canopy because 
these are areas that are of the tree that are capable of um, producing rapidly expanding cells. These burrs are what the new lower growth of the tree comes from when it wants to lower its canopy. A, a lot of commercially available cultivars of trees now, they've had this ability to produce these burrs bred out of them because you can't get nice straight timber mm-hmm. if it's covered in these great lumpy burrs. And you can see they're going all the mm-hmm. way up this tree. And so often if you buy timber from you know young trees from commercial forestry nurseries this ability for good reason has been bred out of them but it means that they won't turn into old trees because they mm-hmm. can't produce these burrs and so they can't lower their canopy and you can see virtually all of these burrs have got things yeah, new growth new growth coming out so of it them. becomes a trade-off doesn't it between whether or not you want an old tree or yeah. whether you want timber yeah so were any of the trees harvested for timber here they were yes we were a bit uncertain about how much and how and why and when um, mm-hmm. but certainly on, on the middle slopes of the park there are loads and loads of charcoal platforms mm-hmm. and saw pits now that suggests two things the saw pits suggest that they were felling big trees a saw pit is a, a hole in the ground that someone stands in and you have a big double-handed saw mm-hmm. and someone sits in the bottom of the pit next to the tree holding the bottom of the saw so yes if you wanted to saw through this tree here yep. you would dig a pit next to it yeah someone would then stand in the bottom uh, the underdog and there would be someone on the other end of the saw on the top the top dog that's yep. where the top dog and underdog ah. came from came from uh, saw pits so we know because of all the saw pits that they were sawing up big timber because you only use saw pits when you've got mm-hmm. really big timber. And the charcoal, well, we don't know whether the charcoal is just the lop and top from the big trees that they chopped down mm-hmm. or whether they were actually, uh, whether there was a significant amount of coppicing going on in here. We know there was some coppicing because there's internal wood, medieval wood banks in here uh, to keep the deer out of the coppice plots. So, you know, it was quite a highly managed landscape. Mm with timber production, coppice, uh, there was lime kiln here, lots of quarries in here. So it was a very busy landscape. Would that have been pre-sort of capability brown? Yeah, uh, and during. And during. So it's quite interesting that probably five days a week, this was a really, really busy place with lots of blokes running about, uh, quite smelly because they were charcoaling and Mm -hmm. making lime in the lime kilns. And then probably at the weekend... It's switched mm-hmm. to being a quiet place where the lords of the manor would bring their guests and show it off. So it was a real double-sided coin. It's really interesting, isn't it, when you think about our parkland today and we don't think of it as having sort of dual purposes like that. No. It has to be one or the other. Well, of course, they were grazing it. It's, grazing um, it's still grazed now? It's still grazed, so it's grazed in the summer with sheep and cattle. Uh, and all year round with the with the deer herd. Mm-hmm. So there's, a, there's still a fallow deer herd here. It could well be these animals are descended from the original Norman animals. As far as we know, it's always had deer since the Norman period. There are records of deer being exported from the park to populate other new parks, um, but there are no records of deer being brought into the park at all. So um, we suspect that um, these are almost certainly... Mm-hmm descendants of the original Norman deer so we've got a thousand year old fallow deer bloodline here wow 
and we still haven't seen any. <laughs> no, we haven't, have we? Because they're very shy. So does the park extend up the hills yeah, there right, without right a... Right to the top. Unfenced? Yeah, there's a fence right on the top boundary. OK. Just next to those conifers, which are the, the bit that the Woodland Trust has just bought and we're okay. going to be converting back. Yeah. So you explain that it's owned by Natural England? No, it's not owned by Natural England. Ah, OK. It's owned by uh, a family trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have an agreement with the trust that we uh, that it's a national nature reserve and that we do the, the tree management and mm-hmm. guided walks and events and so on and so forth. It's research. Yeah. All sorts of things. And is access restricted because it is such a special site? Two real reasons. Um, another tractor. Well, yes, well, it's that time of year. <laughs> <laughs> For over six months of the year, there are people in here managing the deer herd. When I say managing, I mean culling the deer mm-hmm. with high-powered rifles. And high-powered rifles and people wandering about don't mix very well. So that's six months of the year just gone straight away. The thing we're, we're quite concerned about is that if there was uncontrolled public access in here, um, it would completely disrupt the grazing patterns of the deer. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's enclosed, uh, enclosed herd. It is a wild herd of deer, and we need the deer to graze evenly across the park. And we know that if there was uncontrolled public access, that everyone would be down here on the flat bits, and that would force the deer up onto the, the suboptimal habitats further up. So the deer would lose condition as well, because the best grazing is down here. Mm-hmm. We've got just about every sort of bat in the UK at Moffis. I think we've got. 15 or 16 but there are two really rare ones nationally one's called Beckstein's bat and the other's called the Barbastel bat and and they've both got UK populations which are tiny Mm -hmm. in the thousands just a few thousand of each probably across the UK they seem to like ancient landscapes they're quite picky in that they have quite specialised requirements for where they have their nursery roosts particularly the Barbastel we call them barbies. Barbies need a lot of old trees. They have small nursery colonies where maybe half a dozen females will join together to have their babies and they'll have their baby in one tree. After a while, when you've got six lactating females and six pooing babies in a tiny little crack in a tree, it starts to get very smelly. Mm-hmm. And so quite regularly, every week or so, they'll move their nursery colony. They'll just get up and move to another tree carrying their babies underneath them and so they need a whole series of big old trees that they can move around uh, as if that wasn't bad enough they're really picky about the places that they feed they tend to like to feed uh, in, in damper areas and we know from work we've done here putting radio transmitters on the barbies that the, the barbies that breed in here or at least the ones we've tracked anyway go down and feed in the golden valley so they will travel they'll fly over the hill they'll travel over the hill they'll travel quite long distances 20 30 kilometers gosh sometimes they don't go as far here maybe five ten kilometers here to feed and then come back again Mm -hmm. so they'll leave their they'll leave their babies in the tree go off and feed 10 15 kilometers away and then come back Mm. uh, before dawn but of course that points up the fact that these places don't operate in isolation. You know, we mm-hmm. could spend as much money as we wanted looking after Mockers Park. But if 
the habitat in the Golden Valley wasn't right for mm-hmm. the barbastels, we'd have no barbastels in Moccas, mm-hmm. no matter what, how much money we threw at Moccas. So it just points out that nowadays we have to take a much more landscape, landscape scale, scale approach, approach to, to what we do, and the, the Barbie's a classic example mm-hmm. of that. So, yeah. Fascinating. A challenge. Yes. <laughs> so we haven't talked at all about the water down here. Okay, well, that's, that's what's called the lawn pool. Lawn pool. Lawn is a Norman French deer park word in origin, originally lawned, L-A-U-N-D. This is a a russula, rather tattered Mm. russula mushroom. There are millions of different sorts of these and I can't identify them. So So, the patch of grass in front or behind of your house that you you call a lawn. Yeah. uh, it originally derives from lawned and a lawned or lawn was an area of grass that was kept deliberately short mm-hmm. managed short in order to attract deer in to kill them so okay. that's what a lawn was originally <laughs> so what the area we've been walking around is called the lawn the lawn pool the natural pool created at the, len- the end of the last ice age almost certainly by a when a big ice block mm-hmm. carved off the end of the glacier. In the middle of it, it has a fantastic uninterrupted peak sequence, 10,000 years of peak, completely uninterrupted, and beautifully preserved, which has enabled um, lots of academics to reconstruct the post-glacial landscape and land use from the pollen that's in it yeah. right mm-hmm. up to the present day. The nice sinuous outline with the water in it that you can see is a capability brown feature. Mm-hmm. And brown, had, you had to have a capability brown water feature. In your park. In your park, just like if you've got the money, you have to have a Dermot Gavin steel mm. thing with lights on. It's the same principle. And he specialised in sinuous water features, so he came in and he saw the lawn pool and he thought, well, hey, make so a nice water feature out of this. So was the lawn pool actually, did it have water and we could probably see water? Probably very little. Probably would have been more little, like a bog. More like a bog, which mm. the middle still is. Yeah. But he came in with his drag lines and dragged out this sinuous outline around mm. the outside. Fortunately, his drag lines couldn't reach very far, so the main body of the peat in the middle he couldn't reach, and it's still there. And we're drifting this way because I want to show you this fantastic ash tree. And completely hollow, and you can get right inside. Oh, yeah. Can you see up the middle? You can. Go I'm in. I'm going to have a nose. Yeah. Right, and disturb some bats. Right, for bats, I'm not too worried about polecats, possibly. Wow, and I can stand up and just see all the way up. It's good, isn't it? Yeah, that's really cool. Does it sound hollow? It sounds like cork. Yeah, it does. What a damage it. There we go. Squeeze out. Oh, look, there's a hornet's nest there. <laughs> <laughs> Where? That, that hole there. Can you see them coming out? Yeah, yeah. You see that one on the left-hand side, uh, Oh, yeah, so there is. Oh, well. I think they were off to the side. <laughs> I think I was safe. And so we're back at the gate. So what do you... You have to sign yourself in and out of the park. Yeah. Partly so the stalkers know whether there's anyone in the park or not. Mm-hmm so I don't get shot mm-hmm. partly because in the wild bits up the top if I fell over and 
broke my leg or something. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't signed out. Yeah, the Nile's still in there somewhere. Yeah. Hopefully someone might come and look come for mind me. You. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> well, thanks, Tim. It's been so really, really fabulous. Wow, thanks for that, Rachel. Now it's time for a Montycast, a weekly fact on wiggliness. The Montycast, a weekly fact on wiggliness. At Wiggly Wigglers, Richard does the Wiggly Talks on wildlife and gardening, and his favourites are the WI, Women's Institute. Another Montycast next week on the Wiggly Podcast. Thank you, Monty. And next week's show, we will be back on the Wiggly Sofa with a team effort to bring you news of wiggliness, wildlife and... If you want to go to Wiggly Wigglers, go to www.wigglywigglers.co.uk and our latest movie up is our new Worm Cafe silent film. Bye from me. Bye.